Welcome to Music 316 for Friday, December 4th, 2009. When we started our musical survey of Asia way back at the end of September, at um, maybe sometime around 10.30 in the morning when this class starts, we were listening to music from the ancient imperial court of China, where musicians did not play for large audiences, they played by themselves for small groups, or sometimes, as we read in one of our class readings, just for themselves alone, without any other listeners nearby. Now all of a sudden, far across Asia, in a western corner of India, in the desert, at an oasis in nomad country, we find musicians who usually play for themselves alone without an audience. Well, that's not quite accurate because often there are many around them who can hear them performing, but those many listeners are not human beings. They're sheep and goats camels and cattle, because this is a country of nomadic animal herders. And the music making that goes on is carried on most of the time by people who are out herding animals by themselves and don't have any human company. And so they play music for their own enjoyment and maybe for the enjoyment of their animals, depending on how they feel and maybe how the animals feel. It's hard to tell. But they are out there without an audience. When they come back at night to the nomad camp, there are a few people there to hear them. But you think about what the nomad life must be like, following animals around to places where they can get grass to eat and water to drink. And then you think of what that country was like that we saw in the video with sand dunes and dry open spaces without a single blade of grass growing for miles and miles and miles at a time. So if we had time left in this class, I'd say, well, you know, spend a weekend or take a week off, go out to eastern Washington and get yourself some animals and try living like nomads for a while. Now, you would quickly find out, depending on where you were in eastern Washington, that <clears throat> first of all, you've got to stay in the driest, most remote places because otherwise your animals are going to eat the farmer's crops and that's going to get them mad. And farmers are going to outnumber you and so you'll be in trouble that you don't want to deal with. So you've got to be out there in the desert with your animals, and you've got to move long distances to feed those animals. Now, how many animals can you feed? It depends how far you can travel, because the more animals you have, the more they're going to eat, the more they're going to drink of natural resources that are very, very scarce in a desert or semi-desert ecology. So that means that you've got to keep your animal herd 
small enough so that you can feed them and not have them starve to death in the amount of moving that you can do in 24 hours. And you've got to stay on the move a lot. There's a law of diminishing returns. The more animals you have, the farther you have to go, and pretty soon it just gets impossible. You're not going to be able to move far enough to feed all the animals, to get them watered, to drink, and the animals are going to die. If they die, you die, because you are living on the products of your herds. Now, what does that mean? Well, you guys are smart enough to figure that out. That means that you've got to keep the number of people in your group to a minimum, because the more people that you have in your group, the more animals you need to feed them. The more animals you need to feed them, the more ground you've got to cover. The more ground you've got to cover, the quicker you run out of resources. So you quickly run up against an iron wall of diminishing resources as your population grows. You've got to keep the group small. And so that means when you come back with your animals to the tent at night and get together with your group, it's going to be a small group. It's going to be a nuclear family, maybe with a couple of relatives from the extended family. But the general rule of nomadic existence is the harsher the environment, the smaller the group that can survive there. That doesn't mean that you can't have a lot of small groups scattered around, but it does mean that you can't have a big group of performers like those Naga headhunters off in the northeastern part of India who live in a very rainy, lush environment where it's easy to grow crops and they can have villages of dozens or even hundreds of people and they can have a hundred people singing, no problem. The nomad society can't do that. Nomad society, you can have maybe a half dozen singing in the tent at night, but that's going to be about it for the size of a group that you can get together. Or maybe once in a while when you go in to a water, watering hole at an oasis, you can get a bigger group together. But most of your music is going to be solo music, individuals playing, or small groups. And the musical imperative that nomads have to follow is the same as their material imperative, that is, travel light. <clears throat> One anthropologist talks about the Zen strategy of, nom of nomadic hunters and herders. The Zen strategy is to cut down on everything, to streamline your lifestyle to the bare minimum. And that's what nomads have to do. They don't carry big furniture around because their sheep can't haul a pre-sectional sofa on their backs. You don't carry a grand piano around anywhere. I know, though, a musician who went to that part of India and uh, was supposed to give a guest lecture at a school. And she said, well, is there any way we could get a piano? And the, um, uh, the head of the school said, oh, yes, I'll send a boy on a bicycle to get one. Um, no, you see. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't work real well, either a bicycle or a camel um, to get your piano. 
you can't haul one of these things around quickly and easily. So what do nomads do? They maximize their musical result from a limited number of resources. And that's why you have instruments like the Jaws harp, which are small and light and portable, that you can wear on a string around your neck. Or instruments like the double flute, which is a very light bamboo object, easy to carry, and that you can get two musical parts, a melody and a drone, out of just the one instrument. But today, for CD6 example number two, we're going to hear another nomad from Rajasthan with another way of getting extra musical mileage out of limited material resources. His name is Karnaram Bill, and you see his grainy picture here on your handout. Very famous man, famous for three things. First of all, for his music. Karnaram Bill played a flute that was not a double flute, like the one you saw in the video on Wednesday, but rather a single flute that he still managed to get two parts out of by playing the flute normally while he sang or hummed a second part. Sometimes he would sing a drone and sometimes he would sing a counter melody. We'll hear a little of Karnaran Bill here, just a second. Um, yeah. Just to give you a, li a, a little bit of a taste of what, what he does. At that point, he was humming a drone, and he'll later change back and forth between humming and singing, and between a drone and a second melody. So we'll hear that in a minute. But for that, first, I have to tell you that Karnaram Bill was a, um, like many um, nomads, played mostly for himself or for small audiences. But not because he wasn't because he was out herding sheep all the time. He wasn't that kind of a nomad. Karnaram Bill was a highway robber, and he traveled around from place to another, not chasing animals, but chasing people with money. And he would lie in waiting along the highway, hidden behind trees or rocks or sand dunes or whatever, and come charging out at them, your money or your life kind of thing, and um, rob them. And that had some consequences, because that meant that instead of spending his time with sheep or uh, perhaps as a musician in concert halls, um, he spent most of his time in prison. Because after all, it's hard to hide in wide open country like that for very long. And so he kept getting arrested and sent to prison. And so like some of the famous American um, singers from the early 20th century, the Carnaram Bill recordings were made in prison, not in the studio, because that, in fact, was where you could catch Carnaram Bill um, long enough to get him to play and sing some of his music for you. So 
He is famous as a musician and as a highway robber, a criminal. Um, also, if you take a look at his picture, see that mustache? You see that it's curled up and around on both sides, and that's how he usually wore it. But there are pictures of him when he unrolled his mustache, and it took two people, one standing on either side of him, to unroll that mustache to its full length because it was just over seven feet long. And that made him the number two mustache <coughs> record holder in the Guinness Book of Records. <coughs> A distinction no other musician has been known to achieve. So this is the second main reason for Carnaram Beale's um, famous status, but there's yet one more that comes out of his career as a highway robber, because as a highway robber, he made a lot of enemies. And finally, one day when he got out of prison, one of those enemies got to him and he was found the next morning in a ditch with his head cut off. And still wearing his mustache. So this is Carnaram Bill, highway robber, musician, mustache record holder, and decapitation victim. Perhaps famous for more reasons than any other musician you're likely to hear of in a while. So um, appreciate that as you hear one of Carnaram Beale's last performances in his prison cell, playing the flute and accompanying himself by singing, so that he's giving us two voices, that is, the, the <coughs> melody of the flute and his own voice at the same time. <laughs> changes the tone color of the flute there. Here. 
it could be that the guy in the next cell next to us got disturbed at hearing him practice all the time and decided to cut off his head. But it's a kind of music, music criticism that you don't often see in India. And um, probably it was somebody who was angry, ang angry at him over, the, um, over his criminal activities rather than his musical activities. Now, farther to the south in India, I guess I should just quickly explain that <coughs> Rajasthan is up here in the northeast, near 
next to Pakistan. Um, Nagaland, where the Nagas are from, I'm sorry, northwest, northeast. Nagaland, where the Nagas live, is up here in the northeast. The Nagas are a separate ethnic group from the inhabitants of most of India. They're considered aboriginal um, people who um, lived in India for a long, long time and who were kind of pushed out by majority Indians into a more remote area. People in Rajasthan are generally cons considered the same ethnicity as other um, Indians or other North Indians. And so the musicians that we've been hearing from Rajasthan are Indian, North Indian, and Rajasthani people. But these, these are not really ethnic classifications. They're reg re regional identities. And the actual musicians that we've been hearing are members of specific castes that are distinguished by status and purity in the Indian cultural system, not by ethnicity or nationality, although there are theories that suggest maybe the castes were originally based on ethnicity or nationality. But the castes we've been hearing from Rajasthan um, have included the Langa and Manganiar, um, the ones that we saw in the video playing the jaws harp and the double foot, and then of course, Bill, as in Karna Ram Bill. Um, so these are all members of castes which are occupational and status groups rather than ethnic groups. <coughs> Nagas are members of a separately identifiable ethnic group, the so-called Adivasi, which <coughs> is um, the Indian term, or the original inhabitants of particular places in India who are ethnically distinct, linguistically, and culturally distinct. <coughs> and you have such groups in various places all over India. Now, India is a peninsula. Sri Lanka is an island down here. Himalaya Mountains run more or less east and west, actually from northwest towards southeast across the top of India. Now, the coastal area <coughs> is kind of fenced off from the interior of India by two chains of small small mountains called Ghats. These are the Western Ghats, these are the Eastern Ghats. And up here in the middle is a plateau area between the mountains that's higher in elevation than the coastal areas. And in the, roughly the center here, you find another ethnic group called Gond. And the Gond are divided into two subgroups, the Maria and the Muria. Now this again is an ecologically um, rich area with rain and with um, good soil that allows farming. And so the Gond, both the Maria and the Muria, are 
agricultural people who also do animal herding. Now in South Central India, <coughs> in Madhya Pradesh's province, Here's a religious ceremony of the Gund. Now these are instruments that are used all over India. The drum, the gong, the conch shell trumpet. The oboe, double reed oboe, the drum. And this is a Hindu religious ceremony. And so the instruments are ones that you find all over India. Um, but the ceremony actually is part of a possession ritual where the young men dancing become possessed by gods or spirits. And so it ends up looking very different from uh, most Hindu religious ceremonies in other parts of India. By shaking their heads, arms, and upper bodies, they enter into a trance. Only in this state can a god take possession of them. So this is a kind of a synthesis of tribal culture and religion and mainstream Indian Hindu culture and, and, and religion uh, with some aspects of both. I'm sorry that they didn't give us more of the ceremony uh, to look at because, because it's a very interesting thing. But um, um, we don't really get to see and hear a whole lot of it here. <laughs> There are now five gods present in these priests who are garlanded with flowers as a mark of reverence. The Matas, mother goddesses, are given women's clothes and jewelry. And this, this is um, Maria Dunn's wearing the bison horn headdresses. Um, and uh, this is one of, one of the most distinctive dances um, in South Asia. Uh, very special, uh, spectacular kind of performance. And um, for most of the dances, you see the women are going in a circle outside the men, and once again you get a level of participation in the performance in these 
Maria and Maria Gunn dances that is much greater than you find in the classical music of um, urban India. That is, there are more people up on their feet performing here, a greater proportion, if not everyone in the village, at least a pretty good sample of adults in the village, of both men and women. <coughs> and there are other dances and other kind, kinds of uh, performances where um, younger men and women take part too. There are children's dances and um, there are ones that are specialized in um, by teenagers and young people. And we have one of those um, available on our CD. So let's hear a dance from, from the Maria guns. <coughs> These were Maria guns wearing the bison headdresses that we just saw. The ones that we're about to hear are the Maria guns. And they will be performing a dance that is done by all of the teenage boys who want to participate, dancing in one line, and all of the teenage girls who want to take part, dancing in another line. Pretty much all, all of the um, teenagers in the village. And you'll hear that they have different musical parts for the men and the women. <laughs> singing? Women are singing. So what are the men doing? Whistling, yeah. So you have um, two groups doing two different things. Who's doing the drone? Which part is standing still and not going up or down and not ever changing? Neither one, right? because the boys are whistling their melody that goes up and down, and the women are singing their melody that goes up and down. So what you have here is counterpoint, two melodies that are moving in different directions at the same time, not a drone. And once again, as in the case of the Nagas up in northeast India, we find a tribal music done, done by an aboriginal ethnic group, the Gond, that breaks out of the Indian preference for drone parts and goes to a counterpoint singing instead, or counter, counterpoint performing. So once again, the girls and the boys of the Maria village. Thank you. 
besides the woo every time around, you can also hear the girls laughing um, and obviously enjoying themselves. And that's the main reason I have this in here, actually. It's because sometimes we need to remember that music can just be fun. <laughs> fun there isn't necessarily a lack of a serious purpose behind some kinds of musical performances. Now for instance up here in the independent country of Nepal there are two ethnic groups called Magar and Gurung that have a house in, in, in each of their villages and that house is called a Rodi Gar, Gar means house, and Rodi means Rodi. What is Rodi? Rodi is an age group affinity group of girls, first of all, that forms when a, a, a girl becomes a teenager and goes to her mother and says, Mother, can we have a Rodi in our house? And the mother thinks it over and talks it over with the father. And this sometimes takes a lot of talking over because what it means is that the, for the next six or eight years, perhaps, a uh, half dozen or a dozen teenage girls are going to be um, living at their house or hanging out at their house most of the time. And, but everybody likes the roadie guy. And so you always find some set of parents who will say yes. And from then on, for the next uh, six or eight years, the uh, teenage girls of that, in that age group um, during that time will, will come over to their house. And every night, they'll get together and invite the boys over to the house, and they'll do songs and dances. And they'll have a lot of fun, of course, as you might imagine. And so this goes on for years. and. Um, um, you might think, well, this, this is just a case of music um, for the fun of it. But as one of the Rodingar uh, members said to a person who was asking question, now, you know, this isn't just a nightclub. Um, and um, it turns out that the Rodingar has a very serious purpose because the group of boys and girls who take part in the Rodigar get constant invitations to come and help people in the village with their planting crops or with their taking care of crops or with their harvesting crops and so on. Anytime that there is work to be done that would be hard for one family to do by themselves, they all call on the Rodigar to come and do it. And members of the Rodigar come because they know they're going to get extra, extra food and they're going to get to do more of their songs and dances and they're going to work and they're going to help 
their families and other people's families and uh, maybe get a chance to impress the parents of that cute boy or girl um, um, with how uh, hardworking you are uh, and how good a husband or wife you would make when they get around to um, discussing marriage. So everybody in the Rodrigo goes over and helps out with the harvest, with the work, and this is a way that people get their work done without going to a system of hired labor and working for wages and for money, but rather keeping it within the community as a system of neighbors help, helping neighbors. Rodigar is very important that way. Well, I want to give you a very different kind of example from Nepal. And this has not to do with farming villages, but rather with urban celebrations and ceremonies. What we'll be seeing here is the, a festival, the festival of the king of the gods, or Indrajatra from Nepal. And this is a major festival. Many people in Nepal will say it's the major festival of Nepal because it is or was a national festival of the king of the gods taking place in the palace of the king of Nepal. Nepal remained a kingdom until into the 21st century when finally the, the monarchy, the kingship was abolished and a new republic form of government took over. Um, but all the way through the 20th century, the, um, the country remained a kingdom. And so um, at this festival, you had a mingling together of the religious and the political aspects of kingship, <coughs> of sovereignty. So let's just see a little of what happened during the festival. This, by the way, is a huge metal mast that <coughs> is um, um, mounted on one of the outside walls of the old palace. And um, these people are professional painters, actually members of a painter cast, who every year had to repaint that mask so it was fresh for the festival. Kathmandu is the capital of Nepal, and Indrajatra begins with ceremonies at the royal palace conducted by the Brahmin priests conducting a Vedic fire sacrifice. Now, the caste system of India and Nepal included dozens or hundreds of different caste groups, but they were theoretically grouped into four main groups, starting with the highest group, the Brahmin priests, second highest, Kshatriya, kings, rulers, and military officers, the third highest, Vaishya, common people, um, shopkeepers, tradespeople, etc., etc., and the fourth lowest group called the Shudra, servants, serfs, slaves, 
people of the lowest status. Now, the caste system is a system of <coughs> rank, highest to lowest, a system of power, most power to least power. But above all, it's a system of hereditary rights and obligations, where each group has rights that belong to it, and each group has obligations that also belong to it. And we'll go into what those rights and obligations are tomorrow. How do these people fit in? How does music fit in to the caste system? We'll see it acted out in this festival, I'm sorry, on Monday. So have a good weekend, and we'll see you then.